Hello, and welcome to The Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation tour-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Faculty Chronicles. I'm Elizabeth Uni, Chair and Associate Professor at Toro College of Pharmacy. Our guest for the day is Anne Novak. She is the Director of the Writing Center and Adjunct Professor of Law Practice Management at the Toro Law Center. Before joining Toro, Anne founded and ran an Eastern Long Island law firm for 19 years. She has also worked as a reporter copy editor and feature writer. She has also taught legal writing at the City University of New York School of Law and creative writing at Isident Center for Creative and Performing Arts. She's also a member of the board of directors of the Performing Arts Center of Suffolk County and one of the founding directors of the Jacobson Center for Performing Arts, where she danced, acted, and sang under the stage name K.K. Malone and has a master's degree in creative writing and her JD from the City University of New York School of Law. Welcome to the show, Anne. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So Annie, you call yourself an accidental professor. Now, when I look through your CV and seeing, you know, you sing, you dance, you write, you know, all those kind of things. And now you are a professor at the Turo College of Law. So tell us a little bit about your journey to Toro and also being a professor. Um, sure. I never intended to be a professor. My father and brother are professors and I wanted to seek my own path. So I've, I've considered myself a writer since third grade. That was always my goal to become a writer. And to that end, I majored in writing in college, got a master's degree in writing, became a journalist. And then one day, the newspaper Newsday fell open to an article about a new law school forming dedicated to public interest law. And I thought this will help me get a better job in journalism. I, I don't know what went through my head. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I just wanted a better writing job. I applied to the school. I got in. I didn't apply anywhere else. I went to law school. It, in fact, got me a better job. I had a job at Newsday as, as a reporter there. And at Newsday, the editor said, you should take the bar exam. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be a lawyer. But they pushed me, so I took it. Then I had a chance to start a law firm. And I thought, well, this will be an adventure. Uh, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be a lawyer, but I liked helping people. So I did that. And about 19 years later, I had a, a successful law firm. I was happy. It was in Eastern Long Island. And I went to a luncheon where there was a professor from Toro Law Center. And she said to me, we have an opening for, the, for a director of the writing center. You should apply. You're a writer. You're a lawyer. And I said, what's a writing center? 
and <laughs> here I am. But um, so I thought it was part time. I applied. I got the job. It turned out it was full time. And uh, the, the then dean, Larry Rapel, allowed me to work part time to see if I liked it. I loved it. And I did something I never thought I would do. I closed my law firm and went to Toro full time as the director of the writing center. And here I am in my 13th year. And along the way, a couple years in, also started teaching law practice management. So um, I never intended to be where I am. Well, that's very interesting to be an accidental professor, right? So you talk about the writing center um, and being the director of the writing center. So what is what does that actually do? Or what is your primary role uh, being at the law school? Um, sure. As the director of the writing center, I I'm a department head and also a writing coach. So as a department head, I supervise an assistant director who's full-time and three upper level students who are writing coaches. And we all meet, I consider myself a writing coach as well. We all meet with students individually to help them with basic writing skills. And that could be anything from punctuation and capitalization to organization. And just because somebody is is very bright, bright enough to be in law school, and perhaps even a good student, that doesn't mean that they don't need help with writing. A lot of students do, and even the good writers come in and we help them get even better. So in addition to supervising my staff, I also work closely with, with all the students who come in. I have, I have group sessions as well as individual ones, but mostly individual ones. Well, that's a very interesting observation you had that just because someone is in the law school doesn't mean that they are very good in writing. And I think many times when we think about the professional programs, since we are, you know, having so much of screening criteria and picking up some of the brightest students, we naturally assume that they have all the skills, including writing. And it's, you know, it is reassuring to hear that, well, maybe not necessarily they still need some amount of help. So I think there's a very um, unique role that you're playing at the law school. I really enjoy it. I also tell the students who come in who feel stigmatized, and some of them do, I tell them that when I was at Newsday, we had a writing coach. And so it was, it was pretty hard to get a job at Newsday. You had to be a top writer. And then the writing coach, <clears throat> And then the writing coach also only worked with people who he thought were really excellent writers. I lucked out. I made the cut. I worked with him. He helped me immensely. My writing was already strong. He helped me to make it stronger. So I tell my students, I try, I try to help them the way that that man helped me. And the students seem happier when I tell them that I once had a writing coach also and that even really strong writers can benefit. Interesting. So and you are a writer, you are a faculty, but recently you're also the recipient of a 125,000 two-year risk grant from Access Lex Center for Legal Education and Excellence. And your project is titled Identification and Remediation of Reading Disfluency as a Key to uh, Bar Passage for At-Risk Population. So I know I know that's I, a mouthful. I'm sorry. That's a mouthful. But I also know that you were the recipient of a presidential research grant last year. So tell us about this study or tell us about what was your impetus for submitting this grant application for the presidential research grant. Sure. 
Um, in addition to being an accidental professor, I'm definitely an accidental researcher. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, not from the point of view of doing legal research and writing articles, but human, human research. Um, I should say I come from a family of scientists. So I think from the time I was born, I was taught to think about research and to always ask why. And that's, that's probably the biggest takeaway that I'd, I'd like to provide in this podcast, to always ask why. So how that presidential research grant ha happened was that I was not looking to apply for a grant. I knew nothing about applying for a grant, but I was teaching law practice management. I had a guest speaker and the guest speaker asked the students to read from some PowerPoint slides that were being shown on a large screen in the front of the room. And I noticed that maybe about a quarter of the students didn't read smoothly. They, they, the way they read wasn't professional. It was very, it was jerky. They stumbled over words. They seemed to read one word at a time. And at the time I thought, that's odd. And these were pretty good students. And they were, the sentences they were reading were not hard. And the guest speaker was having them read just to keep them engaged. So then the next semester I taught, or maybe a couple semesters later, I taught the same class. Different students, same course, same guest speaker. The same thing happened. About the same number of students struggled. And I thought, hmm, well, when it happened the third time with the third group of students, it's like it hit me in the side of my head and said, wake up. So I discussed it with, with three of my colleagues informally at Toro Law Center. All three teach different things. And all three of them, and they've been teaching for quite a while, all three said, you know, we've noticed this, it's getting worse, that our students, when we have them read aloud, are having trouble. They read haltingly, they read one word at a time. It's really curious. And they never thought to look it up. Perhaps they didn't come from families of scientists the way I did. But I went and I did something very unscientific. I Googled it. And I Googled something <laughs> like, why do students read badly? And it was one of those things that, you know, it was probably midnight and I should have been asleep, but I was curious. I couldn't let it go. And it brought me to something called reading disfluency. And that was a term I'd never heard. And I probably spent about two hours that night when I should have been sleeping, you know, going down the rabbit hole of reading disfluency. But what I found was that it was a thing, as people say. It was something that had been studied quite extensively at the elementary school level. What researchers had found was that lots of students don't read aloud well in elementary school. And the researchers linked that to the students having problems with reading comprehension. And what the researchers ultimately found was the students who exhibited disfluency reading aloud also had problems when reading silently and had problems with reading comprehension. So the researchers realized that if students could not read aloud, they probably couldn't read well silently. So I started looking this up for weeks, I did this, and discovered there were some studies at the high school level, maybe just two of them, two or three, none beyond that. And I thought, well, maybe my law students, not just mine, but all the law students who are having the problems never learned to read properly in elementary school. At that point, I had a neighbor who had just retired as a longtime reading specialist in, in, I think it was in Brooklyn, it was. It was just retired as a longtime reading specialist in Brooklyn. 
And she happened to have a friend who was a school principal visiting as well, a longtime school principal from Brooklyn. And the two women said, oh, this doesn't surprise us. About 25 years ago, a lot of schools discontinued reading aloud, the elementary schools, because parents complained that their students who had trouble with reading aloud, a lot of parents complained that their children who had trouble reading aloud were being stigmatized by having to read aloud in class. So the schools, not all schools, but a lot of schools stopped having students read aloud. Now, one might think that those students would then perform badly in high school and never get into law school. But with some of these students, what seemed to happen was that students developed coping mechanisms. So my theory when I applied for the grant, and I'll get to that in a second, but my theory was that perhaps these students could read well enough to be able to read through elementary school, through, through high school, even in college, and get into law school. But then when they were confronted with the, the enormous amount of reading in law school and the texts that were very hard to read, that were very dense, the students had problems and slowed down and couldn't comprehend. So I'll, before I get to the, to the Presidential Research Development Grant, I just want to say the final thing that I did because I'm such a nerd that way, such a child of scientist. I looked up online to see if there were any apps that addressed this. And there was something called Spreeder, S-P-R-E-E-D-E-R. -E -E and that's not for this particular problem, but Spreeder is an app designed to help people read faster. And I had, I had learned growing up that sometimes you can't look at things straight on. You have to examine a problem from a different perspective. And I thought, what if I use this Spreeder app to test myself and try to simulate what it was like to read haltingly. I don't want to say badly because that, that's, you know, to struggle with reading. So Spreeder would give you, or does give you a paragraph and you can have it display on the screen by whole sentences, by individual words, one word, two words, three words, you can adjust it. Uh, and you don't see the paragraph ahead of time. I took Spreeder and adjusted it for one word at a time to appear on the screen and disappear, and a new word appear and disappear slowly. And I discovered what happened. I was trying to simulate how my students might physically see the words. What I discovered was I felt twitchy internally and I couldn't remember much of anything. And I thought, ah, maybe this is why they can't comprehend because they see words one at a time. Right. So at about that time, at about that time, I received an email from Toro College about a presidential research development grant. My life seems to be like this. Things just sort of happen. <laughs> uh, how I got into law school, I was looking to try to find a better job in journalism, and Newsday fell open to the article about the new law school forming at City University dedicated to public interest law, and I thought, sure, I'll do it. Well, similarly, this grant just popped into my mailbox. I knew nothing about grants. And I applied for it, and I was fortunate enough to get it. And so that was how I became an accident, accidental, <laughs> accidental researcher. <laughs> yes. I wanted to study this with my students to see whether there was reading disfluency that, as I had observed in the classroom, and to try to measure it in some way and see if it was linked to reading comprehension. You know, that's very interesting, you know, because many times we observe things and then 
for various reasons and many times due to lack of time or you know you just you just leave it you know but you didn't you followed it until you are being able to find a reason and developing your own theories about it and you know approaching homework and help even that includes an elementary school reading specialist right it's so very interesting so you get the grant and then you start working on it so tell us what did you find what i found is well, let me just say that I, to get the students, I emailed all the first year students that year. And I believe that was in, I got the grant, I think in April of 2017. So okay. I, and then three years later in April of 2020, I got the second grant. So in April right. of 2017, I sent an email to 166 students, first year students at Toro Law Center and said, would you like to participate? And told them roughly what I would be doing. And 19% of that group said yes. And I've since learned that actually that's a fairly high percentage for law students to say yes. I've since learned that's a fairly high percentage of law students to say yes to a study. So I had 31, it's roughly 19%, 31 participated. And just very briefly, what I did was I, I had to have them read something. So I decided to pick something from an 11th grade regents test. They did not know where it came from, but I picked a passage because I wanted to see how they did with reading comprehension on that. It was 11th grade, they were in law school. And what I discovered was that 45% of that, that group, so it was 14 students, with them, two things happened. One, they exhibited reading disfluency when they read it out loud, various kinds, which I wrote down. And two, they had problems with reading comprehension. So I know it's a small group, but still 45% was pretty much in line with what I had seen, even a little more than what I had seen anecdotally in the classroom. So I then, I took that and looked around for another grant because the Presidential Research Development Grant requires the recipients to try to get a bigger grant. And I was looking around when, when I received an email, and again, fortuitously, an email from Access Lex offering a different kind of grant. Got it. Uh, for the audience, we are speaking with Anne Nowak, who is the director of the Writing Center, and she's also an adjunct professor of law practice management at the Toro Law Center. Okay, coming back to it. So you got a new grant from Access Lex. So what is this grant about? So how is it different from the Presidential Research Development Grant or is this a continuation? So it's about the new grant. It's, 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 a, it's a continuation, but it's a little bit different. Let me say first that I have a co-investigator on that grant. I didn't on the first one. But I approached my colleague, one of my colleagues at Toro Law Center, Professor Suzanne Darrow Kleinhaus, who's the Director of Academic Development and Bar Programs at the law school. And I approached her to partner with me because Access Lex was offering a grant that was tied to, to the bar exam. It was tied to bar passage. And Suzanne is our resident expert. Suzanne, Professor Darrow Kleinhaus is our resident expert about bar passage. So I thought, let me go to her and see if she'd like to participate. And I had been telling her about my other grant. So she got very excited about this. And the title of this one, this is another mouthful, but it's Identification and Remediation of Reading Disfluency 
as a key to bar passage for at-risk populations. And like, like the first one, it has to do with reading disfluency, but this has to do with basically why are some of our students having problems passing the bar exam? Now we're not looking for all problems. There could be many, many problems, but Suzanne and I, Professor Darrell Kleinhaus and I have a theory that some students, maybe even a very significant amount of students are having trouble because they never learned how to read fluently. They were, have always been reading disfluently. And when they try to read a very large amount of material, very dense material in a short period of time, they can't absorb it well, both in law school and for the bar exam. But the, the, what I think is exciting, what I think is an exciting key to this study is that we're using eye tracking hardware and software. And that grew out of something that one of our former deans told me, Dean Harry Ballin, when he was the dean, he mentioned that he had a friend or maybe an acquaintance, no, he mentioned that he had an acquaintance who was using eye tracking software and hardware on his piano students. The person was a musician. And that, that musician was able to see what his students were looking at in terms of the keys and the music by using eye tracking software. And I thought, and hardware, I thought, what if we put this on our students? The only way we're going to know where their eyes are looking on the page and whether they're looking at one word at a time or many words, the only way to do that is with the eye tracking hardware and software. So we're going to be, as soon as, as, soon as COVID lets up a little bit, we're, we're going to be doing this with the students. Although I've been told that we can set up a monitor to track the students about 12 feet away. So we, it, it is possible that we can do this sooner rather than later. We're going to have students read and we're going to track them through the use of the eye tracking device with the software and we'll know we'll be able to see whether students are indeed looking at one word at a time or multiple words and if we're correct that they're not grouping words then we will bring in a reading specialist to remediate and help the students to read better we're hoping that remediation can work we're hoping that it can work at a law school level there are a lot of ifs but we're very excited because we believe that this can happen. If, my theory is if writing remediation can work, then I'm hoping reading remediation can work as well. Uh, there is no question about it. You know, uh, the students come to the college for us to help them through anything, right? So if there is something they need remediation on, if they may not be aware of it, you know, but letting them uh, know about it and working with them is a great, um, uh, it's something that we should all think about. So how are students reacting to it? So did your first group of students, did they eventually figure out what you were doing, that you were actually testing the reading disfluency and uh, how did that all go? Yes, well, they knew right away that we were, we were testing how they read. They didn't know the details and we never told them that it was an 11th grade regents exam. I don't mind that it's publicized now, it's fine. Right. I just, I didn't want to tell them back then because I, I didn't want them to have any feelings one way or another about it. But they knew that they were helping us with an ultimate goal to help students read better. We didn't tell them specifically that we were looking to see if they were, quote, bad readers or just fluent readers. Mm -hmm. We just said that they were helping future generations of Toro Law students. And they were all, 
The reason we chose first year students is that first year students tend to be more eager to help, less busy than the upper level classmates, but also more eager to come in and help. They're very wide eyed and yeah. happy to help. So that was why. Got it. So where do you think this is going to take you? So this seems to be like your um, a new job for you now, right? You know, <laughs> in addition to the director of writing center, you're also now getting very much into this research. So where do you think this is going to take you? So the way you do your study, and you know, if you if your theory is proved, right? If there is a uh, there is a disconnect uh, between the reading and the bad passage, and if the remediation will work. Where do you think this is going to take you? What are your future plans? Well, my future plans, if I'm correct, if I, now we, because Suzanne yeah. Darrow Kleinhaus is part of this, if we are correct, then I'm hoping that this will take us not just to help law students all over the country, but also to help students at, at any level, really, even in elementary school, but I'm thinking higher education students in, in college and in university and grad school, because if our law students are having problems, those students most likely are too. So I'm, I'm hoping to be able to change life for a lot of people who might just be struggling with reading, but for people, for people who are deemed to be good students, you know, good enough to get into these graduate and professional programs, but perhaps they're still struggling. I'd like to be able to help all of them, or maybe even just some of them. I agree. I agree. So, you know, I, the eye tracking software and hardware, you know, getting students sit through that and read through that, that's a lot of um, investment and challenge that goes on with that, right? So maybe, maybe developing something more simple to, as a diagnostic test, you know, would really help a lot of students, especially as you said, in the higher education? Well, we're planning very simple diagnostic tests. The eye tracking software and hardware is kind of fun and it's a gadget. So I'm, I'm pretty good, not to pat myself on the back, but I'm pretty good at making things seem fun. I mean, if I can make, if I can make learning semicolons fun in the yes. writing center, <laughs> then I can probably make this fun. And Suzanne Darrell Kleinos also has a similar personality where she oh, she makes things fun. So, but what we're going to be doing with the students is they will be getting some small gift certificates for participating. And then if we find that they need, they need the reading remediation, we'll tell them this is totally voluntary, but this, this could help you immensely. And if you're willing to give us the time, it's free, but we can help you. And the worst that can happen is that nothing will happen, that nothing will change. But the best that can happen is this will significantly change the way you read and change the way your life going forward. Right. Oh, I, I oh, completely... the, the, other, oh, the other thing I wanted to say is the reason that we're going to be doing, continuing this with first year law students, because they're the enthusiastic ones. And that, that makes a big difference. If you pitch this to them right at orientation or shortly thereafter, you get better buy-in because of the enthusiasm. I remember when I was a first year law student, I, I was way more enthusiastic and willing to try things than I was when I got further along in my law school career and the courses, the courses seemed harder. And I guess the courses seemed harder and I had, I had externships and internships and I was working also a little bit. There was more pressure then. 
a first year student for sure. I agree. So, um, you know, I'm sure our audience listening to this podcast, at least some of them might be thinking, hey, can I do this with my students? You know, like, because we rarely actually hear them reading aloud, you know, that, that usually don't happen. I know it happened in your class in a very interesting way, but usually we don't hear it. So I'm sure there will be audience out there wondering whether they can get this thing done in their college or, you know, how to do it. So any thoughts about that? How can someone else do it? How expensive is this IT software? Will you be willing to train other faculty? So tell us a little bit about how we can, uh, or how you may be able to, um, move it along to other colleges and schools, you know, if this works. Sure. The eye tracking software, as I recall, is about $28,000. And that includes a computer, a specially dedicated computer. Some of the colleges may already have the right equipment, but a special computer that was two monitors plus the, the actual device and the software. But it may not, going forward, that may not be necessary. We're using it to confirm our hypothesis. But going forward, if we're correct, and if in fact remediation helps, then I think it might be possible to give students a test that was similar to the one that I did under the Presidential Research Development Grant. I don't oh. think it's necessary. And I, I might be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think it's necessary to have the fancy equipment. The real key is, will the remediation work? And then if the remediation works, schools can hire a reading specialist, just like they're a, I'm considered a writing specialist. Right. So they can hire a either part-time or full-time reading specialist, depending upon the extent of the need. So it can be done in terms of the equipment. I'm thinking for no equipment, just the cost of hiring somebody. And that's a pretty good investment. Schools are seeing that a lot of schools are saying they need to hire somebody to teach the basic writing skills. So why not the basic reading skills? Very true, very true. So, um, and we started this discussion by you talking about you being an accidental professor. Then we talked about you being an accidental researcher and writing a grant. But, well, you know, you never wrote a grant like that before, but you did it. And this is something a lot of faculty struggle with, right? You know, writing that first grant. Um, it's going to be, and, and Toro actually has a lot of grants there. They have the Presidential Research Grant, they have the Seed Grant, the Bridge Grant, uh, the Innovation Grant. There's a couple of grants out there. Toro really encourages our faculty to uh, do things. But I'm sure there is a group of faculty or at least a percentage of faculty out there who is also wondering, how will I write my first grant? So tell us about your experience writing the grant itself. Okay, well, let me say first that when I approached the grant, I didn't worry about writing. Writing is for me like breathing. So right. I, had, I had an advantage there, but I knew nothing about grant writing and right. I had to learn very quickly. But I want to give probably to me the most important tip here to anybody and that is and it, it may sound obvious but when i finish you'll see why it isn't if you're going to apply for a grant read everything through very carefully way before the deadline and that includes the part about the cover page if there is one on the presidential research development grant i never looked at the cover page until the day it was due because i thought cover page. I put cover pages on, on everything. No big deal. I thought I would just download it and attach it. Well, 
the grant was due on New Year's Eve, you know, by 1159 on New Year's Eve. And shortly before the Sabbath, and I remember this distinctly because our then Dean Harry Ballon observed the Sabbath, and I looked at this cover page on New Year's Eve and discovered it required his signature. I had no idea. And I emailed, I emailed our Dean, Dean Ballon, and I, I was sure he would never look at it. It was almost the Sabbath on New Year's Eve. And I said, help. And he miraculously wrote, again, I've been very lucky in life. He miraculously <laughs> looked at his email and wrote back and said, what can I do? And we, I believe, I think we faxed it, but I, or maybe I scanned it. We did something so that he would get it. He signed it. He got it back. And I was able to get this in. Without, without that, I would have crashed and burned. So please, everybody, be sure you read everything, even something that seems as stupid as a cover page. If you've never applied for a grant, you might not know that. Also, most grants, outside grants, do require a sign-off from your dean or somebody in a position of authority. Make sure you don't leave that till the last minute either. Those are busy people and don't expect that they'll just, you know, with an hour to deadline, look at it. So with that, that being said, in terms of writing, a big takeaway is remember your audience. When you're, you've probably, if you're applying for a grant, lived with your research for a long time. Don't assume that the people looking at your grant who are thinking of, of giving you money or even considering giving you money, don't assume that they can fill in the blanks when you write vague details and they may not seem vague to you. But the way I handle this is, I, when I'm going to apply for a grant, I practice by talking it out with people who are not in my field, who are not in this field at all. And I tell them, just friends of mine, I tell them what it is that I'm doing and I practice explaining things very clearly and simply. That will help you prepare to write for your grant so that you can write to the audience of people who are not in your field, who might not otherwise understand. The one other thing to remember is those people who hold the purse strings, the people with the money, either at Toro or outside Toro, have a lot of other requests. Why would they choose yours? What's special about yours? And even though you're very excited, you're passionate about it, look at it from their point of view. Look at it from a different perspective and try to think what what would appeal to them? Why would they give you the money and not somebody else? So why is this important for Toro students? Why is this important for students in general? Why will this further an institutional purpose? And also, if you can, if it's not a brand new grant, look to see what other kinds of grants have been funded by that grantor. If if it's a brand new if it's a brand new grant, you won't be able to do that. But if you're in the second year or the second second wave of grant giving by the grantor, you'll be able to see the topics at least and maybe even a few paragraphs of what those grants were about and try to make sure that what you're applying for is in line with the kinds of things that, that are being funded by that institution. That's, that's very interesting. So um, you had your challenges in writing the grant. But tell us something that excited you about writing this grant too. I'm laughing. Uh, what excited me was the actual, and again, I, I'm a little nerdy sometimes. What excited me was, 
<laughs> was putting, I'm laughing, putting the words together, learning a new way of writing. So when I went to law school, I had to learn how to write like a lawyer. So when I was very young, I wrote poetry, I wrote short stories. Then I had to learn how, or I wanted to learn how to write a novel. Then I wanted to learn how to become a screenwriter. And I'm now an option screenwriter, which means a producer wants to make something that I wrote. It might not get made, but it means that somebody wants to. But I had to learn legal writing. So this for me was just another kind of writing. It was a challenge. And it didn't seem daunting because I like to write. But even if you don't like to write, here's how you do it. Chip away at it one section at a time. Just look at little pieces. And I use a technique where I only work for small periods of time and I get up and I walk around. It's, it's an offshoot of something called the Pomodoro technique. But mm -hmm. that's where you set your timer for, I like to set it for an hour. I write for an hour. And before I get frustrated, I force myself to get up and walk around. And even if I want to keep going, I don't. I make myself get up and recharge. So just chip away little bits at a time. Don't expect your first draft to be wonderful. Even somebody like me, I'm used to writing my first draft is never wonderful. I usually love my first draft, but I put it aside for a day or two and realize it's not quite wonderful at all. <laughs> um, in, in my case, the grant that I, that I wrote, the grant application that I wrote with um, Suzanne Darrell Kleinhaus, we were very lucky. And our current dean, Elena Langan, took it. She was nice enough to take it and tear it apart. And I mean that in the very best sense, sense of tearing it apart. She looked at it and she looked at it through fresh eyes. And she was, able, she was able to look at it and say, wait, what do you mean by this? This isn't quite clear. Could you explain this another way? And because of her input, the grant application was much stronger and we received the grant. You know, would we have received it without her help? I don't know, but we were very, very, we were very, very grateful to get her help. And also we were grateful we had allowed enough time for her to be able to help us that we hadn't just thrown it to her at the last minute. That's awesome. And we are so happy that you came to us and talked about talked to us about this great research that you're doing, uh, reading disfluency in a professional student, right? And whether we can detect it and whether we can actually remediate it. You know, we would love to talk to you sometime in the future, with you, how I actually finished doing these studies so that we can actually hear what happened to it and were you able to remediate the students and whether this can be used by other schools and colleges. I think we should come back to, you, I don't know, maybe next year or something and have another podcast with you just to discuss the results from the study. But, you know, so happy to have you here very grateful to you to come and spend your time with us and talk to our audience about your research. Thank you so much, Anne. Oh, thank you for having me. And I promise to be honest, if you have me back, if the whole thing is a failure, at least I'll tell you what I learned from it. But I'm hoping that won't be the case. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure it'll all be good. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. And this is Elizabeth Uni from the Toro College of Pharmacy signing off from the Faculty Chronicles. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University system. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. 
So join us next time on The Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.